Hello and welcome to the LARB Radio Hour, brought to you by reader-supported LA Review of Books. I'm your host, Eric Newman, and I'm alone in the virtual studio today, while Kate and Medea are off doing other things. On this week's show, I'm speaking with Jose Vadi about his debut essay collection, Interstate, which explores Vadi's personal history in California, as well as the ways in which our state is forever keeping, erasing, and reinventing the stories of the populations who course through its fields, freeways, alleys, and avenues. Without further ado, let's get to that interview. We're excited to have Jose Vadi with us on the line today. Jose is an essayist, poet, playwright, and filmmaker. His debut play, A Eulogy for Three, was the winner of the San Francisco Foundation Shenzhen Performing Arts Award. He is also the author of Soma Lurk, a collection of photos and poems that spring from the San Francisco neighborhood of the same name. And his writing has been featured in a number of publications, including Catapult, McSweeney's, New Life Quarterly, and our very own LA Review of Books. He joins us today to talk about his debut essay collection, Interstate, which moves across a California that is at once a family home and a site of alienation, humming with possibility, yet also on the brink of disaster, energetic, and yet also decaying. Thanks so much for joining us, Jose. Thanks for having me. So just to open up a little bit, can you talk about the inspiration behind this essay collection and how you've come to think of California or what California means to you across both writing these essays and then kind of gathering them together in the final form of the book? I think with Interstate, collecting these essays together, you know, it really was an evolution of some initial essays that started in the Bay Area. And it really crossed a couple different years and thus like a lot of different changes in California. So some of the initial essays that got it started were set in the Bay Area, Standing in the Shadows of Brands, which takes place in San Francisco and Soma, and Getting to Susie's, which is the earliest of the collection. Those essays kind of gave way to like California Inquiry and these kind of broader introspective essays about the state at large. So but once I digitized this high eight tape of my grandfather that was recorded, you know, over 10 years ago, that's when these essays really started taking shape. And the essay that the book is named after, Interstate, really started to take shape. And myself and my editor, Mensa DeMary from Soft School Press, we really started to see like a North Star for the manuscript. But this whole project was kind of top secret. It was really, I I published like two of these essays online, you know, Getting to Susie's and Standing in the Shadows by way of Mensa and ours relationship. You know, we met kind of through the slush pile of me submitting, you know, writing and poems to him at a previous publication. And then he invited me to submit to Catapult Online magazine when it started. So that evolved into this manuscript that evolved into this book idea that evolved into this book. And it was all kind of as Mensa was becoming you know, book editor and then editor-in-chief of Soft Skull, everything kind of aligned both the manuscript and his like position within the editorial scope of the company. And so it's kind of like this weird top secret turned into a perfect storm. (laughs) I love that. (laughs) Let's actually talk about that titular essay, Interstate, which, as you said, you kind of find archival film that you'd taken when you were much younger of your grandfather. And then the essay kind of follows you following your grandfather's footsteps, or I guess you'd say the roads that he traveled, you know, as he immigrated from Mexico and then kind of moved from, I believe, Oklahoma and then into California. So can you talk a little bit about what that journey was like 
for you and what you learned about your grandfather and yourself along the way. Yeah, it was a really interesting experience because it was all based off this oral testimony that I documented while I was still, I think, an undergrad in college. Mm. And I was still, you know, with a really janky camcorder that I'd never used before. I think I mentioned using a lavalier mic that was improperly inputted. So the fact that I captured <laughs> the sound in any capacity is kind of amazing. So, you know, I really wanted to digitize it for my own personal interest. And then actually driving through California, you know, I always thought about where he worked and I always thought about how much of an intentional kind of ghost he was at times because of not wanting to get caught by various authorities, you know, so in terms of his citizenship status at different times. So, but migrating from Oklahoma as well as Nebraska to the West is a kind of almost fable at this point by way of the writing of Steinbeck and the photography of Dorothea Lange and stuff like that, which I'm super grateful for. But I always wanted to kind of recontextualize it or retell elements of those stories by way of my grandfather's story, but I never saw my place within that narrative until I found this tape that I had kind of already produced, you know, a decade or so earlier. So in a way, like the essay started when I made that tape and like that oral documentation. So it became a literal roadmap for me to fill in the gaps of where he worked. And then other relatives told me of different places where he, I found out that he worked like pretty far north, like into San Jose area, you know, in the bottom of the Bay Area, different parts of the Central Valley and Salinas Valley. But then I also projected okay, if he ended up at this part of the Central Valley and he is a migrant farm worker, he probably went through this traditional path of Barstow through the Tachapes that Steinbeck talks about in The Great right. Path. So I was able to kind of, from the personal to this literary mapping that Steinbeck does, I was able to use both of those as tools to go on some trips and see what is still there, what's different and what hasn't changed much. See, but that's kind of the haunting part, I think, of that essay is that you are revisiting these places and in a way kind of you're also following in the footsteps of a person that you know, but you don't know, right? Because it was your grandfather before you existed. Mm -hmm. And then as you go to these places, a lot of them like just simply don't exist or they're kind of in that very California way. They're these kind of ruins of the place that it used to be. So how did that feel to be like you were almost kind of touching history and yet there's also always this gap between like the place you're experiencing now and the memory or experience of your grandfather that you're trying to call up from it? Really interesting you mentioned that because that description of, you know, this living with the past memory while experiencing this present is so much of like the living reality for me of being a Californian because of these different historical precedents and these different, and, you know, the things that even preceded my grandfather, right? Like, you know, knowing that before 1848, this was Mexican land, you know, like right. knowing exactly. things like that is really interesting to think about, let alone indigenous communities, right? So I think it's really interesting to have a good sense of history in place as history is becoming more of this shorter and shorter and shorter accordion where like, you know, time is a flat circle. And I think like in the digital age, history becomes very truncated and very short because people consume so much of it every day. There's so much like archival stuff going in and going out in a sense, you know. But that being said, I think it's always interesting to realize your place within a place, like to know what was there before you. I think it's very much informed by being a skateboarder and knowing when you show up to a certain schoolyard or a certain part of town, 
you know, if you show up to Justin Herman Plaza in San Francisco, you know, it's a huge skate monument to skaters, but to the average citizen, it's just a plaza, you know, just a place to kind of sit around. So growing up and knowing as a skateboarder, knowing how certain places are special to some and not to others kind of helps inform these larger when I study things about farm workers and labor camps and migratory patterns, you understand the vulnerabilities in a different light and you understand the how temporal some of these places are. That being said, you know, there's a lot of things about these places that are replicating themselves in the context of farm workers and labor camps that were developed, some by the growers, some by local government, state governments. You're now seeing grower-created housing for farm workers who are legally here in the country through H-2A visas happening again. But that's very much a product of the Bracero program that preceded it. Which right, it from the 1980s, right? 50s. It was actually post-war, yeah. So like it was a post-war big labor movement or program. And I think it ended, I'm probably going to get my dates wrong, but it was more so in the post-war era. And it was a very maligned program because... It was just massive amounts of injustices that were faced against farm workers, including getting sprayed by DDT upon arrival, you know, to the States. But, you know, this idea of housing and growers controlling it and having kind of complete control of the farm workers, you know, semblances of that type of control, but also need for housing are kind of replicating themselves in some of these modern day programs, like we're seeing with H-2A visa recipients in their housing. And then you're also seeing violent blowback against uh, housing for any type of farm workers being created in California, which is a through line throughout this community's history. So I feel like visiting these places and understanding that maybe two or three generations before me being there, I may have not been allowed to have been there in the way that I was navigating those spaces as freely and as curiously as I was. Another place that I, that comes out a lot in the essays is the city of San Francisco, which obviously has gone through a lot of change and a kind of long historical perspective, but also in the shorter historical perspective of your experience living there. So can you talk about your experience of San Francisco and kind of how you have witnessed yourself in a fairly compressed amount of time, like see that city change? Yeah, in a very compressed amount of time, the city has changed a lot. And, you know, the ripple effects dovetail over to the East Bay and the South Bay and the peninsula. It's really, I think the change in San Francisco is very unique because of how quickly it's occurred, you know, and how quickly you can kind of see the changes. A lot of it is powered by the tech industry in the institutions that support it, like banking and things like that. You're also seeing very big booms in like the health industry and Kaiser's kind of dominance of space. It's really interesting to see how all these forces are playing together. And then investing, but also kind of controlling and positioning themselves within these city spaces, like, you know, Salesforce basically redeveloping the Transbay Terminal and calling it the Salesforce Transbay Terminal, you know, like everything is kind of now named after a corporation or its founder. That isn't necessarily new. That's happened before, but the palpability of it and the ability to kind of see these things in real time, to see the skyline change, to feel BART you know, getting twice as full, twice as fast, you know, and to feel the population changes and then to see the data proving it, to see the, the reports kind of saying like, no, you're not crazy. Like there's more ridership because there's less of this or, you know, you're really able to see, I feel like San Francisco, unfortunately, is an example of what happens when certain parts of the city and certain amenities, including like rent control and the ability to build and also afford housing don't get regulated in the ways that they should. That being said, though, we're part of a historical 
moments and trends, right? So this isn't the this is like the third or fourth tech boom, depending on who you ask. And there is no bust really in sight. So, you know, what is that really going to look like over time for the city? For me, I always lived in the East Bay, but always worked in San Francisco and had a lot of my art kind of history in San Francisco, performing arts and doing stuff at Intersection for the Arts and Yerba Buena, places like that. And I always saw the city as a place to, and this is probably pretty dreamy now, but like, you know, it's a place that kind of, I thought at the time was really embracing a lot of the street festivals and art and kind of art as a democratic space. There was like Michael Franti's Power to the Peaceful concerts that were these massive free Golden Gate Park affairs, you know, with tens of thousands of people. The ability to have like free mass concerts in the name of just like arts and culture nowadays is like, you're kind of just wondering like how much does it cost and what app do I need to download to access it? And that really sucks, you know? <laughs> that's like not, that's not fun. So, you know, you kind of feel that whole city as campus for young professional vibe, pretty palpable on the daily sometimes. And it can feel very overwhelming, you know, considering that a lot of communities in San Francisco that have been there for years are consistently on the margins and consistently trying to fight for what space they have as renters or best case scenario as owners. So it's hard, you know, it's a seven by seven example of a city bursting at the seams sometimes, but it's also can be an example of like cultural persistence and preservation in different moments too, you know, walking down 24th street is kind of unlike, is a very special experience. That's can only happen in San Francisco's mission district. Things like that are very important. You are listening to the LARB Radio Hour. I've been speaking with Jose Vadi, author of Interstate. We'll return to that conversation in just a moment, but first, we have this week's book recommendation. We have Ruth Ozeki on the line with us today. Her latest novel is called The Book of Form and Emptiness, and she's joining us to give us a book recommendation. Ruth, what book are you going to recommend? I had a hard time deciding, but I think I'm going to recommend uh, this book by um, Jorge Luis Borges on the Aleph and Other Stories. And I recommend it because, well, it's actually a book I've been recommending to people a lot recently um, because it ties into characters and themes that uh, I used in The Book of Form and Emptiness, my latest novel. And so I end up having the conversation about Borges a lot recently and, and And so this is the book that I generally recommend to people. Well, it's just a beautiful book. You know, I was I was kind of torn, like which of Borges's books should I recommend? But this is one that has a few stories in it in particular that I really love and not just stories, but essays as well. So the the first is the short story of the title, which is the Aleph. And it's it's just a wild and hilarious and wonderful story about a character named Borges, and, and, you know, this is something he does, he puts himself in his stories, who gets involved with a really insufferable poet. And it's a story about their relationship. And the poet is writing an epic poem called The Earth. (laughs) And Borges finds him just, as I said, just insufferable. But the poet is really distressed because the house that he's living in has a cellar. And in the cellar, at the bottom of the stairs, is an aleph. 
Right. And so Borges, of course, doesn't know what this is and asks what it is. And the, the poet says, well, it's the, it's a space that contains all of space. Right. It, it's a it's a place that contains all of space. And Borges then goes to the house and and uh, the poet leads him down the stairs. And there's, I think, a burlap sack on the floor where he lies down and the poet leaves him there in the dark. And then Borges sees this Aleph and it's a small iridescent sphere of almost unbearable brightness. Um, it's about the size of a golf ball, I guess. And, you know, it, it contains everything. It contains everything in the world, right? And the, the poet's upset because there's construction going on and he's going to lose his house and he's afraid of, you know, of losing his Aleph. And it, it goes on from there, but it's, it's, you know, it's a very, very funny story. And I really, I love it. And then too, in this book, there are a couple of other, there's this wonderful, um, another essay called Borges and I. So Borges is writing about his relationship with Borges, right? Mm -hmm. And and it starts with, it's Borges, the other one that things happen to, right? And, <laughs> and, you know, and it's just, I walk through Buenos Aires and I pause mechanically now, perhaps, to gaze at the arch of an entryway and its inner doors. The news of Borges reaches me by mail, or I see his name on a list of academics, etc. I mean, he goes on talking about, you know, his kind of public self, and the relationship with his public self. And it, again, it's just, it's really funny. And then the other thing that I love in this book is, uh, you know, a small quote that I was given and was asked to use as a prompt for uh, this little memoir that I wrote called uh, Time Code of a Face. So it's it's all about, about the face and all of the things and people and, you know, continents and history that are contained within a face. And so that's also just a something else that I have a personal relationship with, this quote. And so for these reasons, I rec highly recommend this book. <laughs> that's a wonderful recommendation. Thank you so much, Ruth. Will you tell us the title of the work again and the author? Sure. The title is The Aleph and Other Stories, and the author is Jorge Luis Borges. Thank you so much. We've been speaking with Ruth Ozeki. Her latest novel is called The Book of Form and Emptiness. You're listening to the LARB Radio Hour. Now, back to our conversation with Jose Vadi, author of Interstate. We're going to get to another San Francisco story that I think draws out these tensions between like who is new to the city and who is inside its particularly rarefied echelons, specifically in the tech industry, and then mm -hmm. kind of those whom this industry or the objects purport to kind of be representing or, or you know, preserving. But I also wanted to talk about the fact that you just do a lot of walking in this book, like that's a kind of like, like there's this weird thing. And I know that you were in the tech industry, which we'll talk about in a second, but you have a, a very kind of almost reflective kind of anti-tech approach where it's like, you know, you you often will have a line in, in the essays that observe something to the effect of like, you know, while everybody else is just basically being teleported via their, you know, ride apps and stuff mm -hmm. like that from one place to the other, like you prefer to actually walk through the streets and there's something about the slowness of walking the city 
which also connects to your experience as a skateboarder, where walking the city is, or rolling the city, I guess, is is necessary. But also, can you give us a sense of just the the different way that you interact with the city simply because you're often walking it? That Just that idea of walking in a city street to me always felt like a very empowering act you know like like even as a kid you know growing up and you see (laughs) do you remember that that random rolling stone music video in the 90 where mick jagger is like the 100 foot tall woman you know he's like oh yes love is strong i think is is, is the name of the song yeah yeah it's like it's it's a weird one but like i remember watching that when i was maybe i think it was like 10 when it came out maybe and i remember thinking like, oh yeah, that's how that's how it feels to be in a city. You feel like this tall, ginormous thing like that's with all these other skyscrapers, right? It's like this, it's this um, very empowering feeling to just have complete control over your next step, literally. And to, and you know, in the skateboarding context, you take a left turn somewhere, a right turn, and you're kind of encouraging yourself to go through alleys. And, and as a pedestrian, you can do the same. And I think one of my big fears with, not necessarily the tech industry, but the products that they develop and just how they engage with society is that it creates blinders sometimes. And, you know, like I remember when iPods came out and everyone was so worried about like, everyone has their headphones on all the time. Like, like there's, and now it's like, we're on our phones. Like we're just like staring into a screen all the time. <laughs> yeah. you know? We're getting yeah. more and more removed from sensory, from this, you know, from everything going on around us in the physical space. So there is, it's kind of part reclamation, part empowerment when I walk down the street. And you're also taking up space when you're walking down the street, you know, like you're kind of, uh, you're part of that city's fabric, you know, when you're, when you're doing that. And you're part of the fabric too, when you're in a car or when you're in, you know, a cab or whatever, but you're almost outsourcing that experience. You know, you're hiring a contractor to, to do the work for you. I was reading a report today in the BBC about the training that UK, that like cabbies in London have to do. I think it's called like the labyrinth or something like that. But it's this whole like multi-year process where they have to do GPS coordinates and all types of triangulation of navigation. That's insane. But, you know, it, it just goes <laughs> to show you like certain, you know, yellow meat, talking with cabbies and getting their perspective about town is way different than talking to an Uber driver who's commuting in from the suburbs, getting San Francisco, you know, money from by way of these lift rides or these, you know, rideshare rides and then going back all the way to the suburb. It's like, it's a different, you know, interaction, but I like- And whose movements through that city are also mediated by the app, you exactly. know, that it's like, this is the route you should take, you know, whereas like the classic- cabbie, you know, kind of in the London um, cab drivers, also they know those streets like the back of their hand and know the flows in their own way of kind of like traffic that moves around them based on the time of day and all that in a way that like, you know, now it's short-circuited because the app just tells you what to do. Exactly. Short-circuited is a great way and it cuts you off from that opportunity of experiencing it or messing up or, you know, taking the long route and finding something new. There's, you know, however romantic I, that sounds and however frustrating it could in reality be, I'd rather do that and have that type of investment with my city and my community than than with an app. You know, that being said, you know, like I, I it's not to say that I don't, you know, take cabs or something like that, but it's just if I have the choice and the time, I'd rather I'd rather hoof it. <laughs> so the other thing that I wanted to talk to you about is that 
your essays oftentimes address in the ways that we've been talking about it now as well, the kind of creep of gentrification, right, in San Francisco. But also, I mean, this is true in LA. It's true in New York, of course, as well, um, and, and many other places too. But it's also a kind of... So on the one hand, that gentrification is led by people like you, people like me that like, you know, young professionals who like move into, well, though it doesn't feel so young anymore, but, um, you know, young, youngish professional, young adjacent professionals who move into um, a city and kind of take up space and, you know, have their career. But also you you reflect, I think, and and I'm going to read a passage in just a second, where you reflect on how life, even for these quote-unquote gentrifying residents, has grown ever more expensive. This is from your essay, A California Inquiry. I should also say for listeners, what immediately precedes this is that um, Jose, because of his connections in the tech world, has just recently gotten access to uh, an early screening event for the Disney film Coco, so which is its own thing. But You write here, and what if my access to either event, to have the extracurricular time and disposable income to bear witness to both a studio's sneak peek with proper cultural undertones and a city's most historic tradition? When I was a tech worker in 2017's boom economy of startups and acquisition-heavy old-timers, I could afford good seats to the same type of entertainment as local homeowners, but did not have the ability to buy land in the state of my birth, in the state where my grandfather was a migrant where I have taught and contributed and volunteered on soil that I know first as a pedestrian rather than as a taxi fare. This is what it is to feel perpetually displaced and privileged at the same time in 21st century California. I love all of the things that you are condensing into that very short paragraph, but can you talk to us a little bit about the experience that you're describing? For sure. I think, you know, I'm I feel like a big part of being a professional in the Bay Area, especially during these crazy times with tech and how tech is this very opaque thing to many people. Like, how do you get in there? How do you, you know, get that opportunity? You know, it's like this big spaceship that only exists in different pockets of the Bay Area and certain, you know. And so, you know, getting to, by way of working ironically at a nonprofit arts industry and getting to meet people in tech and like getting an opportunity to work there. I couldn't help but think about, you know, everything that preceded me. Like I was, I was a teacher, you know, working in K through 12 schools and and juvenile detention centers. I was heavily involved with the nonprofit arts industry, um, leading programs there, doing digital stuff there. And when you're in those industries and you're in classrooms, you really get to experience cities in a different way. And you really get to understand communities in a different way. And then you go to certain events and certain places in the city that have, price tags or, you know, entry fees or things like the Nutcracker, the ballet, or, you know, things at Davies Symphony Hall and stuff like that, which are all fine and great. You begin to see a different clientele that San Francisco, that you didn't know existed in San Francisco. And maybe it doesn't. Maybe it comes in from Marin or Sonoma counties, who knows. But it's like a different type of clientele that you would otherwise not see and experience. And so there's a lot of different Californians and there's a lot of different Californians. And I think within a place like San Francisco, people would be surprised at the different, at the kind of high amount of kind of conservative communities within the city, you know, let alone in the Bay Area. So I would say exactly the same thing about Los Angeles. And LA, by the way, exactly. You know? Yeah, you know, big time, big time. You know, it's not all surfers or, you know, starlets trying to make it. You know, there's 
these these places have huge industries with a lot of money behind it, and they speak they're in frequent conversation with each other too. Yes, you know they're yeah. they're in the same boardroom. You know they're on Zoom meetings right now talking about the next production. So right. like, <laughs> you know, it is part of California's big industry, but. I feel like, you know, it is this weird feeling of just growing up here and increasingly feeling like you're, you don't have a place here. And that could mean housing, that could mean jobs, that could mean art space, that could mean friends, you know what I mean? That could, that could mean all these different gamuts, the ability to access freeways, like what, whatever it is, you name it. And I feel like that's increasingly becoming a statewide thing, you know, um, if not nationwide, you know, as California is such a bellwether, you know. That said, you know, I'm navigating these spaces and it's it's just a trip being my own, like a fly on my own wall, so to speak, you know, and kind of like like being able to see, or maybe a different way to say it is, I think it's crazy to use, to see how these different worlds affect me in different ways and to try and tell these stories to other folks through these essays to see that like there's no real like pot of gold at the end of the rainbow. There's almost just more questions. There's just kind of more questions when you enter these different worlds of why is someone like me with my trajectory, like the only person here, like how, and you know, why like you look at other people that are just coming out of college or in internship programs that are entering these industries. And you really begin to see that for some, you know, the academic choices you make or, how early some of these choices you make in academia or professional trajectories like impact, you know, impact your life. And, but, you know, that all being said, it's, I think the biggest thing for me was embracing all these different discordant parts of being a Californian and all these different weird worlds that I was interacting with and embracing the questions and just trying to channel them in ways that were honest to how I was feeling in those spaces and, you know, sometimes it can come off as, you know, maybe bitter. Sometimes it can come off as maybe angry. You know, that's kind of fine. It's it's all those things at once. And embracing the multiplicity of the feelings was like probably the biggest, probably the biggest goal I had in those moments. And it's interesting talking to a lot of folks from the state because a lot of them empathize with that very universal but hard to like physicalize feeling of, of that displacement. Yeah, and also, I mean, I think that one of the things you address there and also at several other moments throughout the book, a kind of generational stuckness, I guess, is a, is a way that I would describe it. That kind of like feeling both like you are achieving and successful, you have access to these things. Like on the one hand, if you look at the trajectory, you know, to bring it back to your grandfather, right? Like there is a kind of, a trajectory of progress there. And yet, right, I mean, by a certain kind of measuring stick, right? So that it's like, now, you know, it's not physical labor, you're doing, you know, more mental labor, you're living in San Francisco, or living in the Bay Area, but working in San Francisco. But yet also feeling totally precarious. I think that's a thing that a lot of us feel right now. And, you know, I would just love to hear you talk a little bit about that, double-sidedness to be both successful but also feel constantly precarious which feels very now yeah i mean it's it really just speaks to the increased cost of living that affects everyone you know and it's uh that that's a huge component of it and i think a big part of it is realizing that some of these as advertised trajectories of like go to college get a degree find a job 
you know, do these things, those pathways, you know, the opportunity to go to college, stuff like that is already difficult enough. But even the job prospects aren't looking, can look pretty daunting too. It's hard because a lot of progress has been made from, say, my grandfather's generation to the present. You know, you think about everything the labor movement did, everything that things like Larry Leong and Cesar Chavez and Dolores Huerta have done. You know, it's in addition to the many other labor unions that contributed um, to what is now the UFW, in addition to like the ongoing grassroots mutual aid efforts in the fields, a lot has been done that needs to be recognized. I think part of to your to the earlier question of recognizing your place within history is is knowing that when you drive through Central Valley and you see people working in the fields and that there's porta potties or there's shade or there's transportation or some type of those those amenities were fought for, you know, um, and were a product of movements that led to legislation. Things still need to change, wages still need to increase, and there's still a lot of violence um, that those communities face. But I recognize that and think about that a lot while going to and fro a desk job, you know, in San Francisco, you know. And I think a big part of the struggle kind of continues, for lack of a better term, in a, in a lot of different spaces. And I think one of the big topics that I'm glad that people are talking about now, and that's kind of a byproduct of Occupy, is this idea of systemic forces that are keeping these things persistent <laughs> that aren't really trying to change these problems, whether it's ownership, whether it's the makeup of certain executive boards of corporations or nonprofits alike, you know, who gets the opportunity to advance in ways that garner greater equity for uh, members of this community is, is something that is still to be seen. But, you know, I th again, it's really just embracing the multiplicity of feelings and really trying to understand like how I feel within these different places. The last thing that I wanted to ask you about is that many of the essays in this collection kind of explore or are in the midst of exploring, meaning you're kind of walking through them. Places that have been left behind, right? Or places that have decayed. So there's, you have decrepit movie theaters <laughs> with like nasty bathrooms and look like they haven't seen, you know, like their heyday is very much in the past. Abandoned towns, urban spaces that kind of once belonged to someone or to a distinct and clear community, but that have been chewed up and kind of repackaged for new owners. Mm. Um, can you talk about the appeal of spaces like that for you as a writer, but also kind of how you feel that those spaces, which as I kept reading through the essays, increasingly come to embody some kind of truth or nature about California? Thanks for checking out all the abandoned spaces, you know, like I, I definitely want to <laughs> have like a lot of different places in there that do or don't exist. And, you know, um, even like, you know, brand new skate parks that I think are like terrible, you know, like, that are like right. small and puny, like things like that are kind of fun to talk about too. But yeah, I mean, California itself is a very, is very much still a modern experiment. You know, the idea of California, the kind of, for lack of a better term, programming within California, like within these different pockets of the state, you know, things like Cathedral City, which was, you know, a, a, a millionaire's or a billionaire's like man-made city in the middle of the high desert above Edwards Air Force Base that never took off and is now this kind of ghost town. You know, I feel like things like that can only exist in, in this state because the state is so weird and big and kind of funky in those ways, you know, places like, Salvation Mountain out by the Salton Sea, you know, someone just deciding like, I'm going to make this thing. You know, I, I don't, I don't necessarily mention it in the book, but 
you know, the topography of the state is already crazy. You know, it's it's already insane when you really think about it. And I really wanted to highlight, I kind of wanted to imbue a skateboarder's perspective of looking at the crannies and the cracks and the, the things that are discarded that have potential. And I wanted to kind of apply that to all the things in front of me. So whether it's a labor camp or a carniceria or like a whatever, you know, just like I wanted people to see that there was kind of like this before and after. Even the, the movie theater I visit in Fresno, the Crest Theater, which does a lot of great programming, has seen some better days. You know, I think formerly owned by Mel Brooks, which is really weird to think about. But, you know, it's a cool old theater that's still there and is still holding strong and that I can go check out. If that space is is available for me, if someone is making it available, then it's almost like this weird incumbence upon me to go check it out if I'm already checking out other stuff in the area. So it's kind of like applying a skater's eye to um, to things you don't skate, <laughs> but, that you have, but that you have a cultural uh, interest in or a personal connection to. I think it's really interesting to talk about skate spots too in the book, you know, that are, are no longer because it allows you know, citizens that might've had their coffee breaks there to, to realize what those, you know, dudes with boards and baggy pants were trying to do in the area, like why they were looking at you trying to get you to leave or something, you know, it's, it's interesting to think about space as this fluid thing that has historical undertones, especially in the wake of so many things changing so rapidly across the state. Thank you so much for speaking with us. We've been speaking with Jose Vadi, author of Interstate. Thanks so much for joining us. Thanks for having me. Thanks for listening to the LARB Radio Hour. Subscribe to our show on Apple Podcasts, SoundCloud, Spotify, or wherever else you get your podcasts. If you like the show, please rate us on Apple Podcasts to help us get the word out. And we'd love to hear from you. The producers of the LARB Radio Hour are Medea Ocher, Kate Wolf, and Eric Newman. Our executive producer is Alan Minsky. Our sound engineer is William Broaden. Editorial production by Jake Levins. Our intro music was written and performed by Imogene Teasley-Vladen. Teasley-Vladen.